Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Wee Charity scandal continues and more information has been released, but the government prorogue now. Are we ever going to find a solution to that? Should police services have access to the COVID-19 database? Hamilton police apparently have accessed the database over 10,000 times. We'll talk with the former privacy commissioner for Ontario to get her read on what's going on. And worries continue over a second wave of COVID-19. A report by a group of health care providers says that paid sick leave should be fixed by employers, especially during this pandemic. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about what's going on in Ottawa. We've talked about, of course, the Prime Minister proroguing Parliament, which means that they're basically shut down until about the third week of September, and there'll be another speech from the throne, etc., etc., etc. But that also means that the work that was being done by uh, some committees is basically put on hold, and it may or may not come back. One of those, of course, is the investigation into what happened with the Wee fiasco. Well, yesterday, more information was unveiled in the Wee charity scandal. RCMP are now examining examining rather the decision to give the charity the deal to run the student grant program, and the opposition party's got a hold of some of the documents that were released, and uh, it's not a pretty picture, actually. Uh, opposition critic uh, Pierre Prolver uh, had a media conference yesterday, a rather animated media conference yesterday, uh, where he explained his concerns. So public servants believed that there was a friendship between the prime minister, his finance minister, and we, and they are cl- they are screaming out with extraordinarily unusual language in these memos that they are under deep pressure to to recommend this group. Well, that puts a different light on things, doesn't it? Because we had asked the question, obviously, when this thing came to light a few weeks ago, why didn't anybody raise red flags? Apparently, an awful lot of people did. And uh, they were ignored by the government, or so it seems, anyway. Joining us to talk about this is Peter Grave. Peter, of course, is a professor of political science at McMaster University in Hamilton. Good morning, Peter. How are you doing today? Great, thanks. Uh, we were skeptical about this. Uh, obviously, there's some major concerns about protocol and, and what the government did and, and not following what should have been the procedure in situations like this. But uh, the, the uh, announcement yesterday about the fact that an awful lot of people in the civil service actually said, don't go there, don't do this, and the government went ahead with it anyway, is, is rather troubling. Uh yeah, I mean, it's it's actually good that we have a public service that is willing to uh, point out these problems. I mean, in some cases, like the uh, inability to deliver it in uh, in the French language in Quebec, uh, maybe they could have pushed a bit more. But yeah, overall, uh, it's maybe encouraging that we have a public service that does it. But you're right, a bit troubling that we have governments that don't seem to necessarily want to listen to that when they have other... Uh, you know, friends they wish to reward or there are certain programs that they want to get out the door regardless of that advice. There's always going to be pol- politics, I guess, Peter, involved in some of these decisions. You know, who knows whom and, you know, who's buddies with whom. I guess that happens more than we probably know, probably more than we want to know in some situations. But it's 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 seemingly that the more information we get about this, the more flagrant it seems that this this was really an abuse of the process. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, it seemed like there was a vague idea of a program that they wanted to deliver. Uh, and then when, you know, we came with their other program, uh, suddenly that vague program was concretized as something that, you know, needed to happen and could only have been delivered by this one uh, organization. So, yeah, I think that's generally the, the idea that comes out of, uh, out of these uh, documents that have been released. Uh, you know, and again, with without, I mean, again, a lot of this is done by spoken words, so you don't necessarily have it yeah. in there. But it's clear that the senior officials uh, could tell that their political masters wanted them to do something for we, and uh, that maybe this program had to be uh, sort of wrangled into existence in a very short period of time uh, to serve that purpose. 
does that happen all the time? Is that it, I, I mean, that's not necessarily the way things are supposed to be, but is that really how government works, that, uh, that there is always going to be a, a government of the day that's going to bend towards certain individuals and not others? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's always some of that. Whether there's a lot of that is another matter. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, processes around you know, bidding, uh, around transparency and so forth have been put in place to re- reduce that. Uh, and certainly when we made more use of the public service to deliver programs, there was less opportunity for opportunistic private interests to kind of push for a certain program because they knew they could deliver it or otherwise make money off it. So, I mean, it varies a bit in terms of the processes we put into place. Uh, you know, and so I guess organizations like Transparency International in many ways are looking at to what extent is decision-making in countries, uh, you know, opaque and seemingly based on putting out programs that serve the friends of the regime, and to what extent are safeguards put into place to ensure open call for proposals, open bidding processes, uh, or forms of delivery that can't easily be uh, corrupted, if you like. Is is it carved in stone, Peter, that governments are supposed to do things in a, in a transparent way? I mean, when it comes to, for instance, awarding a program or whatever it might be, to actually have a process and a competitive process, or is that just a suggestion as, as, as to how things should work? Well, I mean, there's a number of rules around, you know, uh, beyond certain points, certain programs have to be put to bids or, you know, the different processes are tied to that. Governments find ways of, you know, finding the, you know, the fine print, the exceptions that are allowed uh, and opening them a bit, you know, more broadly uh, to serve them. So in many ways, you know, the politics we get depends a bit on what we as citizens demand. I mean, for many people and for many times, politics is really about who gets to use the state to enrich their friends. Um, if we want a, a different kind of politics that you know, serves a more common good or common needs, we as citizens have to push and be vigilant to make sure that when our governments are spending money and running programs, that they uh, do so in a more open manner so that we get the programs we want rather than the programs that serve the friends of the regime. And I know that there's an awful lot of you know side roads here in this whole debate about you know what we was and why the favoritism seemed to be there and 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 like I say we can't be naive about this and say well governments don't ever do that because we've seen you know shipbuilding contracts by governments going to certain areas where there just happens to be a government MP or maybe maybe even a government minister in in those areas that happens but still there, there needs to be some sort of a process doesn't there where you can say look let's give somebody else a shot at this too you, we may choose company A as a, over over company B but at least there has to be the appearance of, of transparency and, and of competitive uh, bidding. Yeah, I mean, in this case, of course, the argument is it had to be done so quickly that there was no time to do it, and they, you know, they did look into it, and there was no other organization that could deliver it. But again, you know, you know the danger, I think, of, of these situations is that we, uh, as citizens, when some of these things come to light, we can look at them and say, well, that you know, seems to be a bit of a self-serving uh, argument in this case. I mean, was this really such a great program in the first place? And, uh, you know, certainly had they taken a bit more time to do it right, they might have seen that even we was not able to uh, deliver it and had to uh, uh, think about hiring a public affairs firm in Quebec to deliver the, the French portion of it to the quarter of the population to which that would apply. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think we need to need to demand uh, open processes. I think the danger for governments that don't follow them is that we get situations such as this, which I think are pretty harmful to them. As citizens begin to say, are they really uh, acting in the public good, or are they simply acting for people who are connected to them? Well, because when you know the the smoke started to to 
curl up here about this, and we started to get some information about this. That was the government's explanation: is that look, this this is a crisis situation. We have to get this done, and we don't really have time for a competitive bid process. But as we found out after the fact, a number of different agencies, including government agencies, by the way, said we could have done that. We we didn't get asked in a situation like that. So it it kind of looks as if this was something where they said this is what we're going to do. Here's who we're going to do it with. Now let's backtrack and find out how we can legitimize this. Yeah, I, I don't think I could have said it better, Bill. So here we are in a situation like this. We've seen this happen. We've seen governments crippled by decisions like this in the past, Peter. We've seen governments fall because of situations like this. How serious is this for the Trudeau government? Uh, I don't think it's that serious. I mean, for the government to fall, all three of the opposition parties would have to uh, agree to make that happen. Uh I think they would do that if there was a sense of outrage uh, in the country, perhaps like there was in the early 2000s around the sponsorship scandal. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, at this point, we have the Bloc and the Conservatives seemingly pushing uh, for a confidence vote, and they'll get their chance with a speech from the throne, uh, you know, in the week or so after September 23rd. Uh, I suspect the NDP uh, is reading the temperature and thinking that Canadians aren't looking to go to the polls less than a year after the last election. Uh, but they may be able to uh, use, you know, broker their support for sustaining the government uh, to achieve some policy goal that they think would be popular with Canadians. So, uh, you know, I don't think the, the Liberals are in grave danger of falling, but presumably they have to do something to satisfy Mr. Singh and the NDP uh, if they're to continue after the, you know, the end of September. And you're absolutely right, Peter. This is where the politics really comes into play, isn't it? I mean, this is a, from as bad as this might look optically for the government, this is a, a great opportunity for the NDP and for Mr. Singh to, to t- call the Prime Minister and say, hey, let's uh, let's talk about what we'd like to see in that throne speech. Yeah, I think so. And, I mean, in some ways he may be pushing against an open door if we're to believe some of yeah. these uh, stories that have come out about Mr. Trudeau after five years in power suddenly deciding that he wants to make important changes in the country. I mean... And it's hard to know how much of that is simply a way of trying to explain why he got rid of Bill Morneau. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that would be the question would be what will be the, the demands that the NDP puts forward in this moment to continue to support the government. But, again, his, his negotiating leverage is a bit dependent on, peop- on, on Trudeau's reading of uh, the Canadian population. I mean, I think a bit like the gas plant scandal in Ontario, and it's sort of priced into how people are thinking about this liberal government and makes them maybe more wary of it, maybe less happy with it. I'm not sure it's taken Canadians to the point where they say, well, we must have an election over this or we must throw them out because this was such an egregious abuse of power. Which is the song that we're hearing from the Conservatives at this stage. And, uh, you know, both Mr. O'Toole and Mr. McKay, of course, who seem to be the frontrunners for the Tory leadership, are talking in those fashions. But that's that's their job, right? I mean, opposition people's oppo- uh, and that's what they're doing. Uh, they'd love probably to see an election. I don't think the NDP do. And, and a lot of the stuff that, that the NDP have used in the past as, as part of their platform, things like, uh, you know, universal daycare, things of that nature, uh, and changes to employment insurance, there's an appetite for that. Now, it's there's a price tag to it that I'm not sure we're all crazy about, but I'm not so sure it would be a bad thing for the cons- for the liberals rather than to sit down and say, yeah, let's, let's throw some of those things in there and see if we can move forward on those. Uh, it, it might help the country. Uh, we're already in debt, so, you know, uh, if the excuse is going to be, hey, what's a few dollars more if, to get a program like this, this might be the time and the place for something like that. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, we, we've had with this uh, pandemic a revelation of a number of shortcomings in this country. Uh, I mean, you mentioned EI, which was unable to respond, uh, although, I mean, uh, <laughs> the size of the crisis was a bit uh, unanticipated. But 
we also see at the moment the, the, the question about a strong decline in women's labor force participation as uh, you know the kids being kept home from school seems to be falling only on women so is this maybe a time to actually begin saying well how do we have a recovery that supports women uh, say through a child care program so yeah i mean there's a number of uh, important uh, important possibilities that uh, we can discuss now i mean to say nothing about uh, the situation of long-term care uh, or, you know, problems around housing that are coming to the fore as people are having a tough time making rent after losing income through the first half of the year. It's interesting about that because these things are all woven together, really, aren't they? I mean, we're talking about what happened in the government's procedures or lack of procedure, I guess, in a situation like this. But it's all enveloped around COVID and, and the things that have happened. And COVID did create some problems, but it also exposed a lot of problems like housing or lack of housing, affordable housing, and so many other things that we've been dealing with and talking about for a long time and governments haven't done a whole lot about. Yeah, and I mean, I think in some ways we can also look at this uh, failed summer uh, volunteering program as a sign, too, of governments having forgotten to, to think about how you actually deliver programs and ones that make sense. I mean, we had a Canadian student jobs program, which probably would have been the best way to deliver more support to students in this situation and help, in fact, uh, charitable organizations who want to hire people at proper wages and an usual employment contract so that they can do serious work and they know they're going to show up and not just disappear like, uh, you know, a volunteer might uh, under this program. So, uh, I mean, I think, too, as, as we go forward, part of it is to say, why are we happy with these kind of amateur stop-gap programs that the government's putting in place if it wants to actually deal with particular issues such as, you know, students needing work. Well, let's actually talk about them in a serious way. Peter, thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you again today. You're welcome. So what are the implications for a situation like this, and how does the government respond? I mean, they, they have been prorogued right now. Let's uh, ask Ab- Abigail Beeman about this. Abigail, of course, is Global National's uh, Ottawa correspondent. Uh, and Abigail, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could hop in with us today. Me too. Thanks for having me. The revelations that we heard yesterday indicating that there were a lot of people in the civil service that raised red flags about this and said, don't go there. And the government either ignored it or said, we're going this way anyway. Uh, how does how does this wear now? How is this going to fly? I mean, the Parliament's not in session right now. The committee's not working anymore. Is this a story that's going to die in two or three days, or are the opposition parties going to try to hang on to this? Oh, you can bet the opposition parties will try to hang on to this. And uh, that point that you make about, you know, committees not sitting right now is exactly what we heard from uh, the conservative finance critic, uh, Pierre Polyev, in a very showy press conference yesterday where uh, you may have seen it. He was just, you know, throwing pieces of paper. He was rather animated, wasn't he? That were rather animated is the way to put it. Yes. <laughs> Talking about how it's all redacted and why can't we ask questions about that or why won't we ask questions about this at committee? Because... There are no committees. So certainly the opposition is, is not going to drop this. And, you know, there are a lot of questions that these documents raised, uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages, which suggest in some cases, you know, a different narrative than the one that the government was, is putting forward. So obviously the Tories are outraged by this. Uh, how, get a read on how the NDP are. are. Mr. Blanchette obviously would love to see a non-confidence motion. Certainly the Conservatives would at the same time. Uh, I, I'm not so sure the NDP want to play ball there. Well, you know, nor the Conservatives at this point anyway, because remember, they don't have a leader right now, and obviously a lot will change in a week after they pick their new leader on Sunday. But will they be ready or interested in going to an election as as soon as uh, the end of September? I think time will tell there, and it's too early to say. The NDP certainly have not come out 
in any strong form talking about an election. They say that they're going to weigh their options and see what's put forward. And actually, to that end, uh, the bloc put out a statement the day of the prorogation saying that while they probably aren't going to like the throne speech, they're going to wait and see and hear what the Liberals propose before they make any decision. Abigail, you've been watching what's going on on the Hill for a long time now. Is, is this a story that's going to still have legs when they, they go back to work on the, in the third week of September? Well, I, I think so, just based on, you know, how much is in these documents and how uh, there, there are a few things that, uh, that jumped out at me that just really contradict what the government is saying. And I think the opposition's job in terms of holding the government to account is going to be to try and get to the, the bottom and sort of, you know, square some of those circles that don't, that don't make a lot of sense here. So I certainly think that there will still be questions. The other thing to remember is the ethics investigation, the average length of time for one of those is seven months, as we've heard from the Office of the Ethics uh, Commissioner. Bill Morneau still under investigation, even though he is no longer finance minister. The prime minister still under investigation. And also yesterday we got some, I'll, I'll call it stepped up language from the RCMP initially when we were asking excuse me, the RCMP, whether they were investigating this case, they just gave us a no comment. But yesterday, after the dump of all of these documents and all of these uh, new questions about the closeness of the WE organization to the government, the RCMP now said that they are examining the matter carefully and will take all appropriate action. So certainly not coming out and saying there's an investigation, which they wouldn't do, but definitely some some heightened language, I would call it, uh, from the RCMP in this matter. And so there are so many other threads in addition to these documents that I certainly think that it will have legs in uh, a few weeks' time from now. Well, there are no slow news days in Ottawa these days. Abigail will be Not watching lately. for your re- No, no, no kidding. Uh, you can't even take an afternoon off. Uh, we'll be watching for your reporting on Global National tonight and every night. Thanks so much for this, Abigail. Thank you. Take care. Abigail Beeman, of course, Global National Ottawa correspondent. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Rather disturbing story. Uh, should our police services have access to the COVID-19 database? Uh, London Police Services Board is now looking into the high usage by that police service about uh, accessing the base. Hamilton also has the same sort of concern. As a matter of fact, we're told that uh, Hamilton Police Services uh, accessed that database over 10,000 times over a few months in the last little while, raising concerns about public safety and certainly about privacy in situations like this. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Ann Kevorkian, uh, presently the distinguished expert in residence, leading the Privacy by Design Center of Excellence. She's also a senior fellow of the Ted Rogers Leadership Center at Ryerson University and, of course, formerly was, of course, the Information and Privacy Commissioner for the province of Ontario. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. We haven't talked since uh, you had your old job, and uh, you uh, you, kind of have to put that hat on again as we talk about this. Were you surprised by the story, Anne? Totally. I mean, Bill, it makes no sense. 10,000 times they accessed this database. First of all, they shouldn't have had it to begin with. Mm -hmm. It's sensitive health information. It does not belong in the hands of the police. If they have... A probable cause, they can get a warrant, and then they can access it. But absent that, you can't just gain access to sensitive health data. And they did it 10,000 times for what? Well, that's a, a great question. And, and their response to this, as we've heard from other police services, is, well, we you know, we had a call, and we, before we respond to the call, we need to access information like this. Uh, and, and I guess the response to that, Anne, is, well, why? I mean, this is COVID-19. You're probably going to take precautions anyway, aren't you, if you're responding to a exactly. call? Exactly, Bill. They should be taking precautions all the time because they have no idea who they come in touch with. 
if they may be COVID-19 positive. So it's, it's a joke that they're saying, well, we have to access the database to check on that. No, you don't. That's not going to give you any extra information. You are far safer to take precautions in every case. I mean, back in the days when we had the, the long gun registry, I know that police used to access that information before they'd respond to a call and at least you know, on a computer and say, okay, is there a firearm there? First of all, uh, not everything was registered, so that was kind of a useless exercise anyway. But yeah. I would assume that if, if, if you're responding to a call at any address here in this area or any place in the, in the province right now, masks and gloves. I mean, that's what you're going to do it. anyway. You'd think you so gotta, anyway. That's it. You have to do that anyway. Anyone going out in public is told, wear a mask, make sure, you know, and with the police, gloves, etc. So that's a given. Assuming that that's the case, why would you need to access this database uh, 10,000 times? Well, uh, we've had some feedback on this, as you might have expected, Anne, from uh, a number yeah. of people here, including the uh, Canadian Civil Liberties Association have responded yeah. to this, uh, the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. And uh, uh, the, the common thread I'm hearing from some of the comments about this is, is very, very similar right through this, this discussion, is this, this kind of rings of the, of the carding debate that went on some time ago and say, why do you need this information? Yes, exactly. They don't need the information. See, that's the problem. Uh, it's always a power grab. Because they can, uh, because as a police, they can access the information. No one's going to give them a hard time. Well, those days have changed. You are going to get a hard time because there is such surveillance creep taking place and unauthorized access to sensitive data, especially health information, should not be permitted at all. So I applaud the, um, you know, the ACL, the uh, CCLA for stepping in and saying you have to stop this. And I just urge everyone to remember. Your health information in the wrong hands can really come back and haunt you. So be very protective of it. Well, and this is one of the, the common threads that we've talked about, about information and, and, and though the spread of information. And we're pretty cavalier, of course, the stuff that we put on social media, and we're probably not doing as much as we should to try to protect our own uh, privacy when it comes to situations like this. But the other element to this, and, and by the way, I, I want to backtrack just a second. I'm, I'm the first one to say, look, it, I want our police officers to be safe. And, and these are troubling times, and, and I get that, okay? Uh, I don't want them knocking on some door and finding trouble that they didn't anticipate. Uh, but at the same time, even this database, Anne, uh, is, unless it's like 24 hours old, it's outdated. I mean, you know, if you had a test yeah. four or five months ago, that means nothing. If you had a test yeah. 10 days ago, it means absolutely nothing. I mean, so, you know, err on the side of caution and wear masks and gloves. That's what we're telling everybody else. And I'm sure that's what police are doing anyway. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. Of course, we want the police to be safe, but they, they, they are most safe if they wear masks and gloves routinely all the time. That's the norm these days. So you don't gain anything by accessing this database, which, as you rightly pointed out, is probably already dated. It, it just it boggles the imagination, and I guess what exacerbates the problem here is uh, as, as they tried to explain exactly why they were doing this, and we can take that for what it's worth, yeah. the province granted them permission to do this. What were they thinking? Oh, you know, it's crazy. Under um, Whenever there's an emergency situation, like a terrorist incident or a pandemic, as in COVID-19, the, the government is allowed to exercise what's called emergency powers, which enable them to grant access to information, which otherwise would be strongly protected under privacy laws. So they probably just did this routinely. They didn't think it through, unfortunately. And that's the problem. Uh, I, I know you've seen this, but just for the sake of our listeners, uh, the response in, in part, 
from uh, the provinces. Uh, During the height of the outbreak and given the unprecedented nature of this virus, it was imperative that our first responders have access to essential information to take the appropriate precautions to protect themselves and to reduce the potential for community spread of COVID-19. That's from uh, a spokesperson for uh, the Solicitor General, Sylvia Jones. And and on the surface, Anne, that makes all kinds of sense. But if you're wearing gloves and masks, I I mean, even if you found out, okay, I'm I'm going to, you know, to Bill Kelly's place right now. Oh, my God, there was a positive test there. What are you going to do? You're going to wear masks and gloves. You're not going to not respond. So what? Just do it anyway. Exactly. They didn't think any of this true. They're saying all this. It sounds really good. But once you dig into it, it's absurd. Like you said, you should be routinely, every, every occurrence, wear masks and gloves uh, if you're the police. That's what you should be doing to protect yourself. Because you also don't know who else might be there who's not on the database who may be positive. So it's it's just the weakest excuse possible. And who's... (laughs) When, who's making the decisions here, and, and who's whispering in their ear and saying, that might not be a bad idea, that might not be a good idea? <laughs> See, that's a good question, Bill. You would think they'd have experts around who would advise them on these things. Um, they, they apparently don't. It's, it's completely unacceptable. Especially when you look at the, at the data here. We've talked about Hamilton Police, of course, with over 10,000 access uh, points yeah. here on, on this data. But other police services never bothered. So it's not as if this was was imperative it's not like some because apparently some police services said well we don't need to do that exactly because they're smart and they're saying we take precautions every single case we encounter we always wear masks and gloves you know then you don't have to do this invasive intrusive um gaining access to this health database how can we protect ourselves from stuff like this? I mean, we are assuming oh. that the people that are in charge, and I'm talking not just police services, I'm talking about, you know, in this case, of course, the, the you know, the office of the uh, Solicitor General and others, that yeah. they got our backs in situations like this, that they understand. And, and it's not as if there hasn't been a debate, Anne, over the last four or five years about privacy. I mean, even when you had your old job, that was yeah. a huge issue, and it hasn't really gone away. Uh, why aren't they considering that before they make these decisions? I wish I could answer that, Bill. I can't. It it makes no sense. So we have to just persist, and we always have to let them see what our expectations are, basic expectations in terms of preserving our privacy, which forms the foundation of our freedom. There is no reason why this should have occurred. It did occur, and unfortunately, it will probably occur again. So we have to constantly remind the government, follow the law, do the right thing, protect people's privacy. It's, it's not an either-or. You can do both, protect privacy and ensure public health by wearing masks and gloves. So that's the mandate. And, and you know, it, with what you're doing now and, of course, in your previous role uh, in, in here in the province, uh, how difficult was it for you to get that message across to the government, the governments, because it's local uh, and, 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 of course, provincial? You know, uh, this was, I, I served as commissioner for three terms. And yeah. We always maintained a dialogue with the government. I thought that was really important. Don't just connect with them when there's a problem. Like just constantly, uh, you know, have a presence there, which serves almost as a reminder as to the importance of privacy. And maintaining that dialogue, I think, is really critical. I mean, because there are certain things that we have to give up. And we understand that, you know. I mean, you know, somebody in... in federal and provincial government i mean they have my social insurance number they have my tax records they have all sorts of stuff uh i mean somebody in ohip has my my medical health i get that but we all do that with the understanding that okay that's going to be between my doctor and me and hopefully no other eyes on this when we hear stories like this you got to wonder okay who else is looking at this stuff 
Yeah, exactly. And the, 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 the references you just made, what we have to get up to the government, they're for finite, limited purposes. So you give your um, tax information to the government only for purposes of taxation, uh, social insurance number, et cetera, health number, only for uses by the medical profession when you're seeking treatment. I mean, the uses of this information are extremely limited to the primary purpose of the data collection. It, it's never intended to be used widely for other purposes that were never contemplated. But now we're starting to get this. I'm starting to get the impression. I think I'm, a lot of other people, I feel the same way about this. And is you have to wonder about information sharing. Who else is looking at this? You know, health yeah. information. Are insurance companies getting an eye on this? I mean, you know, is uh, that data being shared? We, I, I'm hoping not. Uh, same thing with COVID-19 yeah. stuff. That's a very private issue, I would think. I understand that there's a, a public health aspect to this. I get that, absolutely. But if you identify yourself like that, public health knows that, uh, I don't understand why they would share that information with anybody else, though. Uh, they shouldn't share it with anybody else. Uh, if public health has your information, you're COVID-19 positive, they'll meet with you. They'll do manual contact tracing, meaning... They'll ask you, you know, who are you in touch with, family, friends, et cetera, and notify them. But it's very limited, and the information is strongly protected. Uh, gaining access, the police gaining access to this database is completely unacceptable. That's why I can't imagine why the government approved that. They, they weren't thinking this through at all. You know, the, one of the unintended consequences of this, and it's not a very nice one, is that uh, when people hear stories like this, and they're going to say, well, I'm not going to give that information at all then. I'm, I'm not going to yeah. go and get tested, for instance, for COVID. I'm yeah. not going to do any of this stuff because I, I don't know who's going to find out about it. And you can understand that, can't you? Because given this example with the police gaining access to your information, and who knows what they may have done with it. You know, the um, CCLA is, is trying to make sure that the police now delete whatever information they may have collected from this database. Who knows what they're doing with it? And so I understand people's reluctance to part with any sensitive personal information because there's no guarantees that it's not going to flow to other third parties and unintended consequences. And do we have all the guardrails in place that we need to for something like this? I, I, I remember the debate, and, and, and I, this goes way back when I was on city council many years ago in Hamilton, yeah. uh, about closed-circuit cameras in, in downtown yeah. areas. And, uh, and you know, there's, there were privacy, and there still are privacy issues about that. But uh, yeah. the way that w they, they tried to get around that was they set guardrails up. Okay, only these people can see it. It has to be destroyed after a certain length of time. You can't keep them on record forever and ever and ever and all sorts of things like that. And, and that seemed to assuage a lot of those concerns. Do we yeah. have those parameters in place for something like this? I doubt it. And the thing is, even if we had them in place, who is going to ensure that they're being followed? I mean, the only way you can make sure this stuff takes place and is followed is by having some kind of uh, oversight that someone comes in and examines what they're doing with the information, making sure the data was deleted when it should have been deleted. I think that's totally lacking right now, and that's well, what causes me so much concern. Yeah, and absent of that, of course, uh, we're reactive to these situations. In other words, yeah. we're, we're talking about this now because it's already happened. Uh, yeah. Where was the oversight to make sure that it didn't happen in the first place? Where was the, 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 the oversight to say, wait a second, no, you can't go there. That's not, that's not information that's, that should be available to you in a situation like that. I mean, we have people in place in government that are supposed to be able to do that sort of thing, aren't we? We're, we're supposed to. Supposed to. You're right. You're, we're supposed to. It seems to be non-existent now, that kind of oversight that you were referring to, um, because it was the civil liberties organization that outed this uh, police use of health data and uh, made them stop it. It wasn't the government. It wasn't, you know, th that's what concerns me, 
is that the government should be overseeing all of this, and it doesn't appear to be the case. So, you know what this comes down to, and I know you, we, we've had this discussion in the past, you and I, and it's about public trust, and, and yeah. whether it's government, whether it's police services, and again, I'm, I'm not slamming police services. I mean, this was access yeah. that was granted to them, and I get that. And I, it's about public safety and police safety, and I, I understand that totally, and I support that totally, too. But at the yeah. same time, now that we hear a story like this, the public is going to say, well, what else are you accessing? What else do you know about me, and who else is seeing this stuff? Yeah, of course. And and you can't blame them for saying that, because uh, it seems that this kind of unauthorized access is taking place, and we only happen to learn about it after the fact. So the proactive aspect of this appears to be lacking. You know, what I refer to as privacy by design, embedding privacy into your processes proactively, it appears to be non-existent. But given the debate that we've had over the last couple of years, you'd think that this would be a, a priority. Uh, it doesn't seem to be. As a matter of fact, even the explanation we got from the Solicitor General's office was rather cavalier, mm-hmm. I thought. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, you were right. The point you made earlier, there is such a trust deficit right now everywhere. No one trusts a government. Uh, and then these stories keep coming up, and, you know, both federally with the whole we thing and this and there's just no trust and governments have to try to build trust because otherwise it will continue to be eroded and uh, very unfortunate situations will arise well i'm looking at the bigger picture here and, and there's a lot of debate that's happening well right across north america i suppose about police services and and we've all heard the the cry for defunding which i, I don't agree with by the way uh mm-hmm. but but you know a reevaluation of what police do and how they do it is, is welcome i mean every department should be doing that we get that but with that out there, and that's that's hanging over everybody right now, the police, us as a society and everyone else, you'd think that there'd be more diligence to say, look, at, let's watch where we go here because we're only going to make a bad situation worse if we do something wrong or make a, a misstep. Well, this was a misstep. Well, you know, you would think that there would be more vigilance, that the police and others would, in government would say, yeah, we've got to be more careful and take better precautions. I don't know why that's not happening. It certainly doesn't appear to be happening. And that's the problem. In terms of wanting to build trust and strengthen the public's um, faith in, in government, they have to take these measures. But I don't see them, Bill. That's the problem. I've always maintained that, uh, you know, whether it's a political decision or whatever it might be, uh, before everybody gets up from the boardroom floor or from their Zoom meeting or whatever it is, somebody ought to ask the question, how is this going to fly? Uh, how's the public going to perceive this? Because yeah. perception is reality when it comes to the public. It may be legal what they've done, but if the perception is, no, that's wrong, then you better have that discussion before you break up the meeting and say, okay, how are we going to deal with this, and, and is this the right thing to do? And if, and if you're adamant that it is the right thing to do, then you better have a solid explanation as to why they need to do it. And, and, and you know, police protection is great. I get that. I'm, I'm for that all the time. Yeah. But, yeah. but as I mentioned, as you talked about, too, in the beginning of our conversation, if, in fact, they say, oh, yeah, it's, there's a positive result there, all they're going to do is wear masks and gloves. They're not going to do anything differently. They're going to wear hazmat suits or anything. They're still going to respond to the call. So yeah. do that anyway, and you don't need this information. Toronto police didn't do it, and they, I'm sure they have a lot more calls than, than Hamilton and London and everyone else does, yeah. but they decided this was a bad decision, and so they just decided not to go there. I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, it's, it's such a poor decision, and it, it makes you wonder who authorized this decision. Um, did it go to the head of the police department? Or did, like, who made this information accessible and made the police department think, yeah, this is what we should be doing? I, I just, I don't believe it. It doesn't make any sense 
So uh, I think that there should be a, a careful audit and review of this decision and how it transpired. Which probably starts at Queen's Park, because, I mean, that's obviously where the permission was yes. granted. And I don't know whether, we don't know at this stage whether it was a request or just a, a dictum from, from them. So uh, more to come on this, I guess. And great talking with you again. Thanks so much for the time today. A pleasure, as always. Thank you. Stay healthy. Okay, talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Dr. Ann Kevorkian, of course, former uh, Information and Privacy Commissioner for the province of Ontario. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Our government's pivoting are they looking at how they've handled COVID and saying maybe there's some things we could do better that we could improve on because we do know according to all the experts anyway that there is going to be a second wave and it, it may or may not be severe we don't know at this stage what's going to happen but uh, and we don't know how long the COVID virus is going to stick around too it's not going away anytime soon that's for sure so as worries continue about a second wave of COVID-19, uh, there is a new report by a group of healthcare providers that has analyzed a number of different government programs and have decided that, well, one of the things they need to address here is inadequate paid sick leave. And that's something that employers and especially businesses have to address and fix as this goes forward because it's one of the shortcomings, I think. Now, the government tried to do that. The federal government tried to do that, of course. Uh, but those programs are running up pretty quickly, and uh, we're heading into phase two. So what's going to happen? Carolina Humanis is a registered nurse and a coordinator of the Decent Work and Health Network. Joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Carolina, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Me as well. Thanks for having me on the show. It's not usual for governments to say, you know what, we probably could do that better. Uh, but there, are, I, I think, you know, what COVID did, aside from the, the obvious things that it did, it exposed a lot of shortcomings in, in the way that we do business and handle things, vis-a-vis uh, -vis things like, well, let's talk about uh, sick leave and things of that nature. Uh, maybe you could explain exactly what the situation is and how we could make it better. Yeah, that's a great place to start. So we have written a report, like you mentioned, that looks at paid sick days across all the jurisdictions in Canada. And what we have found is that Canada is just really far behind on the world stage when it comes to paid sick days. Um, we have looked to other jurisdictions and we know that a comprehensive paid sick day policy is not only feasible, but necessary as we continue to open schools and um, workplaces open up. And we have some serious concerns with the proposed federal uh, paid sick day program. Well, I'll give you an example, okay? And I'd like you to get your comment on this. I have a very good friend of mine who was in a situation like this. And, of course, we've seen COVID, and we've had people that have tested positive, and, and of course, they have to self-isolate. And, uh, and he wasn't sure whether his employer was going to include those, that self-isolation as sick days or not. On top of all that, he had to have emergency surgery, which put him off work for a couple of weeks. And basically, he says, I can't afford to get sick anymore. I've, I've used everything up between self-isolation and, and my, my post-surgery recovery. And he's, he's in a bit of a bind now. He says, what if I do legitimately get sick right now? I'm going to lose money. And, and he's not the only person I've heard that's been in a circumstance like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I hear this from my patients all the time. And a lot of the, the workers that we interviewed in, in this report have said the exact same thing. Um, we need to be able, from a public health perspective, to give the public the financial tools to be able to stay at home. And, you know, and it's not even just about the financial tools. It's also about the infectious disease risk, right? We're coming up to the, you know, coming up to flu season. Um, and the, the federal program is temporary. It's only for COVID-19 related leaves. And we have some concerns around an application process, which we know if there's any barriers in accessing this leave um you know workers will simply go to work sick um so 
so we're, we're feeling really concerned, but at the same time, hopeful that we've been able to create this report that really paves the way for what paid sick day policy should look like. You, you've raised a very interesting point, and I, I think that's one of the things that I was concerned about. We've talked about with some of these government programs, and which I assume are, I'm, I'm sure are, are done in, in the best interest, and they're trying to, to help out. I get that, but we've got sick before. We we used sick time before. COVID nineteen has really just exacerbated the problem. It's not the only problem we have. Yeah, that's exactly correct. And so the Decent Work and Health Network has been calling for paid sick days since 2015. I mean, this is really not um, something new. We know that workers without paid sick days are much more likely to go to work sick. Um, there's been tons of research on this. Um, the other piece that I we feel really concerned about is, is the reopening of schools. We know that this is you know, without paid sick day policies, this is really a recipe for disaster um, that will hurt low income and racialized families the most. We've seen the tragedies in precarious workplaces. Um, and, you know, research shows that parents who have paid sick days are less likely to send sick children to school. Um, so we're starting to see paid sick days come up in a variety of different settings Um and we know that it's important uh, from a public health perspective, and we know that it's important for people to stay at home on the first sign of illness. And without a comprehensive paid sick day policy, that simply is is impossible for so many who are choosing between, you know, going to work, potentially sick, sending sick children to school, and, you know, paying rent at the end of the month. And I, I know you, since you've been working on this uh, diligently on this last, I'm sure you've heard this pushback, but I want to get your comment on it for our listeners as well. Uh, because what a lot of employers are going to say, and what governments, frankly, in some situations will say is, well, that's going to be awfully expensive. You know, small businesses where, where you might work or your, your spouse might work or somebody, but are going to say, that's just an added expense. Those are, those are days off that we can't really afford to give to employers. But I, I'm, I'm guessing the, the other side of that coin is you can't afford not to uh, because this is happening. It's happening in real time right now with a lot of us. And that's exactly the reframe that I was going to provide is that, you know, how can we afford not to have this policy? And I'll, and I'll share a story with you. Yesterday at the press conference, we had um, a, a sanitation uh, worker from the region of Niagara, and he was sick with viral pneumonia. And this was all the way back in January before COVID-19, and he didn't have paid sick days. So what did he do? He had to go to work. And he ended up giving viral pneumonia to 35 of his coworkers, essentially the entire workplace, and they gave it to their families, another 250 people. So this is the kind of risk that we have to think about. It's either providing the necessary protections or we all risk getting sick. Um, as we've seen with COVID-19, this is just simply not something um, that we can afford. We've seen the tragedies in the long-term care homes and the different, um, you know, industrial uh, factories. And actually, the research shows that uh, going to work sick can cost up to 10 times more than taking the day off. Um, so I think we really need to move away from focusing on this small piece and look at the bigger picture about what this means for our communities and for the health of our loved ones. i got to ask you, is as, as these discussions happen, and I'm hoping they're going to happen within governments about this, one of the things that's always been a bit of a sore point for me is that it, when they finally do allocate sick days, and you're right, not every company does that, not every business does that, but for those who do, why do they arbitrarily put a number on it? Like, okay, you're allowed 10 sick days this year, Carolina. Uh, you don't know what's going to happen to you. You don't know if you're going to have to have surgery or develop pneumonia or whatever the case might be. I, I'm, I'm surprised. I understand it can't be an open-ended thing, but how do they come up with a number like that? 
Yeah, so the Decent Work and Health Network has been calling for permanent paid sick days. We've been calling for at least seven with additional days during public health outbreaks like the one that we're in. So we're calling for seven permanent and then an additional 14. Um, the 14 days is to compensate for the potential quarantine period. Mm-hmm. And the seven days is, you know, you take into consideration how long it takes you to get over the flu. Um, research shows that the average number of days is three to four, that you're actually contagious and you need to be home. So if you think about one bout of illness, um, and let's say, for example, that you have children and you need to stay home with them. Um, that's usually how, you know, the number from a medical perspective, which is where I'm coming from, um, you know, we, we usually get. And the other piece that I want to say is that there's been research that um, says, for example, in San Francisco, where paid sick days were legislated, they legislated nine of those days, um, that on average, workers used three and a quarter of them used zero. And we know from our research that workers actually save the paid sick days as a form of insurance because you just don't know what's going to happen. Um, yeah. I, and I know that some people listening right now say, yeah, but, you know, the people abuse that all the time. They look at sick days as holidays and, you know, they accumulate them and take them. And, and I, I get that. I, that to me is an abuse of the system. Uh, and it, it, I think it really muddies the water from people that legitimately need this. But I got to ask you this, since you've done a lot of work on this and you just talked about, let's talk about the reality of the COVID situation that, that's with us right now that we're all living these days. The government decided, for instance, to uh, to put a moratorium on, on evictions because they knew that people were going to be hard-pressed financially. So you can't boot people out now because they can't afford to pay the rent. Uh, sadly, that that's already expired. Why didn't they do the same thing with sick days? Uh, I mean, this is, a, like you say, desperate times call for desperate measures, but they never seem to address that element of it. Yeah, I'm really not sure sort of what we're waiting for. We have to act now before it's too late, before the cases start to spike again. Um, so hopefully we're listening, we're, we're, you know, calling out to legislators, um, you know, the Ontario government, the, the federal government. Um, this report is addressed to all of Canada. So this is policy that could be, we can see this, uh, you know, in all provinces and territories to really listen to these evidence-based recommendations to prevent against the devastating second wave or, you know, these fall peaks as they're calling it and to make sure that we're protecting the students um the workers and the the schools as you know things continue to open up well and we can learn from what's happened in other parts of the world i mentioned this on the program the other day and i'm sure you've seen this data too Uh, australia is just coming out of of their winter i mean you know it's summer here it's winter down there uh, so they've already seen their second wave, and, and first of all, the COVID wave, and they've seen that mix of the COVID wave and the influenza epidemic. The good news was uh, the influenza of that season did not have the dramatic effect that they thought it would, but that's probably because people were still you know, social distancing and wearing masks anyway because of COVID, and that's a great way to stop the spread of the flu as well. But the COVID numbers were still terrible. Uh, so we I, I, we have to come to the reality here, I guess, Carolina, that this isn't going away. Uh, so we better have governments react to this instead of being reactive, maybe be proactive and say, let's let's modify some of these policies, let's change some of these policies because this is going to be with us here for a while. That's correct, and the time to do it is now, right? Before you know, we get to the flu season. You know, I mean, with the flu, at least there's a vaccine, so that's another piece that I want to add to the conversation. But for example, yearly there's 3,500 deaths of influenza. Um, there, there is no medical rationale why the proposed federal paid sick day program is is temporary and only for COVID. Um, 
so we're really calling for a comprehensive program without exceptions to workers um, so that everyone has the tools to stay safe and to keep the public safe. Uh, great work that you're doing, and, and I, I applaud you and your organization for getting into this because it's one of the things that may not be on anybody's radar until it gets sick and then realize, my God, that the system is not set up to accommodate this sort of thing. and It's uh, only going to exacerbate the angst that uh, I guess a lot of people are feeling. I, I wish you good luck with this. I want to stay in touch, and, and please keep us informed as to how this is proceeding and, and how governments are responding. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Great talking with you, Carolina. Take care. Bye. Carolina Jimenez, of course, uh, who is with the Decent Work and Health Network. And that's that's a, a very interesting point. There are other elements to this, too. Uh, and, and I think both the federal and provincial governments have to start looking at some programs like this. Now, the prime minister, of course, weighed in on this the other day, not specifically with sick days, but uh, whether there are going to be some changes to the social welfare system uh, as a result of this. Of course, they had the CERB program, which is being phased out these days. But uh, the, the, the virus is not going away anytime soon, and there's going to have to still be, some, I think, some reorganization of some government programs. Tom Cooper is the director for the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Tom, how are you doing today? Hey, great, Bill. Good to hear you. Good. Rumor uh, that I heard that I don't know if it has any legitimacy to it anyway, with the CERB program going out, I know that some opposition MPs in Ottawa are, are pressuring, or at least in asking the government, to simply roll that old CERB program into a, 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 a guaranteed wage, a living wage program, which I know is something that, that would, would whet your appetite, certainly. Uh, and a lot of us have been talking about this, including, of course, uh, Senator Hugh Siegel and so many others. Don't know if that's going to happen, but at least the, that discussion is taking place, and that's a good thing. Oh, it is, and that uh, that private uh, member's motion is is Lee Gazan from uh, Winnipeg, who's an yeah. NDP member, and uh, she, I think she has about thirty thousand signatures after only a couple of days. So this is something that I think Canadians from coast to coast to coast recognize that we need. We certainly recognize it here in Hamilton because we tested the idea of basic income between 2017 and 2018 before as you as you'll know bill before the provincial government uh, shut it down not but, only did uh, we test it tom it worked it worked it absolutely worked and we have the we have the statistics and the stories uh to demonstrate that it worked it helped stabilize housing it helped people eat and and stay healthier uh, most importantly, from my perspective, in doing this work for for nearly two decades now, it restored hope for people who had been living in poverty for so long. And I think the provincial basic income pilot uh, could have been a very strong roadmap for where we find ourselves in today. Uh, unfortunately, it was shut down, but there's still a lot of political inter- interest from all sides of the spectrum. Uh, to move this forward. And, you know, I don't think we just need a reorganization of social programs, Bill. I I think we need a wholesale reform, and I think basic income could do that. Um, Transitioning from the Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit, CERB, uh, to a national basic income, I think would provide people with that foundation uh, to get us not only through this pandemic, but the economic calamity uh, that has resulted. And and will provide Canadians um, with that ability to not only buy their basic needs uh, um, in terms of paying the rent and buying groceries, but, but it'll help kickstart the economy again. So I, I think basic income really is a win-win, and the federal government definitely should be looking at it. 
Okay, in anticipation of the tsunami of emails I'm going to get saying, I don't want to pay for somebody who's going to sit on the duff and do nothing. Uh, there's, first of all, there's a cost of not doing something like this, the, the social cost, the, the health care cost, and, and, and a number of other costs that are involved in this. Uh, but this is not giving people to do, money to do nothing, uh, as, as some people have characterized this. Uh, this is a top-up to what they're doing. This is a, an opportunity for them to be able to pay their rent. Uh, and, you know, the first person that tells me, and I'm gonna, I know I'm going to get these, Tom, uh, says, you know, we're not going to, these people just, uh, they're lazy. Look at the tent city that's going up right now. The people have been evicted from their places because of COVID, and they have nowhere else to go, and they have no money to pay for anything else. I mean, we have to, and governments have to anticipate that this is the reality and that they have to address this. Oh, absolutely. And I, I held a uh, webinar just the other day with a series of business leaders, including uh, Bianca from our own Chamber of Commerce. Uh, the, the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce is looking at uh, the idea of a basic income pilot uh, because they see exactly the need for it, um, not only during this uh, economic turndown, but, but the fact that many jobs are becoming automated and, and people need that stability uh, when they're working contract to contract. Uh, basic income really is that uh, social um, uh, income support we need in the 21st century. And, and sure, there's people out there who think, you know, people are going to be lazy. If, if we pay them to do nothing, they'll do just that. But I think even this last six months have proven that people want to be part of the solution. They want to contribute. They don't want to sit home. Many of us have been doing that, um, you know, not being able to uh, to get out into the community. I think we all want to be part of the solution. We want to work. We want to contribute where we can. But there's lots of people out there, including those on provincial social assistance programs, who need modified work or perhaps can't work uh, for periods of time, and they need uh, a enough to live on, enough to pay their rent uh, to meet their health needs. Uh, a basic income could do that as well. So it's, it's for people who fall between the cracks uh, while they're working, uh, but also people who aren't able to work right now and need that income support. By the way, we should be, I got about a minute left here, but I want to remind our listeners, uh, or even our listeners in London who are, are listening to our conversation right now, uh, that if you've got some trepidation about this, the whole concept of basic income is actually something that's being championed by Senator Hugh Siegel, who, by the way, is a conservative, uh, and he was a, st a trusted advisor in the Brian Mulroney government for the longest time, of course, before he was appointed to the Senate. And, and, and Hugh's been on our show, and I know you've talked to him many times as well. Uh, he's championing this, and, and governments are starting to listen. And we've got a minority government right now uh, that, that I know wants to stay in power, and I'm sure they're going to start at least listening to this argument. It's about time we had this conversation in Ottawa. Oh, absolutely. And just last week, a group of business leaders led by Floyd Marinescu uh, released a plan to look at how we pay for basic income across the across the country. And uh, so I'd encourage listeners to, to look up UBI Works, ubiworks.ca. Um, there's a costed plan uh, for how we could potentially implement a basic income in Canada. Tom, uh, let's uh, continue to stay in touch on this and, and hopefully put some pressure on our elected representatives to at least have this conversation. I think it's, a, it's about time that we uh, finally put some, some muscle behind this, as you've been doing for the last number of years. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Tom Cooper from the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free.
so you never miss an episode and make sure that you rate and review.